In his book, The Life of Pi, Yan Martell tells the story of when Pi, a young Hindu boy, met Father Martin, a Catholic priest. And Father Martin tells Pi the story of the gospel, and Pi wants to know more. He says this, I asked for another story, one that I, fi- I might find more satisfying. Surely this religion had more than one story in its bag. Religions abound with stories. But Father Manning made me understand that their religion had one story. And to it, they came back again and again, over and over. It was story enough for them. We are saved by a story. We are not saved by doing things. We are not saved by being good enough. We are not saved by keeping the rules. We are saved by hearing things, by hearing truths, by hearing a story. We are saved by hearing a story and simply trusting it, believing it, the story. And we change and grow as we rehearse that story. And that story is the gospel. That Jesus lived and died for us. And God raised him from the dead. And he's coming again to make all things new. That's our story. And in this church, we're sticking to it. That's our story and we're sticking to it. We're a people of the story. And this story is enough for us. And that's how it's always been with God's people. We have one story that we keep on repeat. We have always been a people of the story. And the story of Jesus is what saves and what changes us. As late seminary professor J. Gresham Machen said, he said, the early Christians, to the astonishment of their neighbors, lived a strange new kind of life. A life of honesty, of purity, and of unselfishness. And from the Christian community, all other types of life were excluded in the strictest way. From the beginning, Christianity was certainly a life, but how was the life produced? It might conceivably have been produced by exhortation. That method had often been tried in the ancient world. In the Hellenistic age, there were many wandering preachers who told men how they ought to live, but such exhortation proved to be powerless. Although the ideals of the cynic and stoic preachers were high, these preachers never succeeded in transforming society. The strange thing about Christianity was that it adopted an entirely different method. It transformed the lives of men, not by appealing to the human will, but by telling a story. Not by exhortation, but by the narration of an event. It is no wonder that such a method seemed strange. Could anything be more impractical than the attempt to influence conduct by rehearsing events concerning the death of a religious teacher? That is what Paul called the foolishness of the message. It seemed foolish to the ancient world, and it seems foolish to liberal preachers today. Could anything be more impractical than the attempt to influence conduct and and to change people, to see transformation come simply by rehearsing events concerning the death of a religious teacher? That's the foolishness of the gospel, y'all. 
That's what's strange about Christianity. It flies in the face of conventional wisdom. Our lives are not transformed by appealing to our wills or by exhortation. We don't change by being told to change. We are changed by hearing a story, by the narration of an event, by the announcement of the gospel. The simple message that God loves sinners is what saves and sanctifies us. And that's what we'll see in 1 Kings chapter 8 today. So turn there in your Bibles. Gospel rehearsal is what brings about change. It's what brings about transformation in our lives. It's only as we rehearse the indicatives of the gospel, that's the truth, statement of fact, only as we rehearse the indicatives of the gospel will the imperatives follow the commandments. Now, it seems foolish to many people, but the gospel really is the everything of the Christian life. And that's why we repeat this story every week here at Grace. And that's what Solomon and company did for a whole week as they camped out and dedicated the temple. They rehearsed the gospel. And they're telling us to rehearse the gospel over and over and over again until every nook and cranny of your heart believes it. When you blow it, and you know what that is for you, whatever that is, when you blow it, rehearse the gospel until every nook and cranny of your heart says, yes, I believe this good news. When you sin, rehearse the gospel like a broken record. Let the gospel skip on the turntable of your heart until your heart believes it. That's what we'll see Solomon and company do today. So let's dig into God's word now and see how they rehearse the gospel. And as we read the first nine verses of 1 Kings 8, see if you can find a certain word that gets repeated several times throughout these verses. You might even want to circle the word in your Bible. Now, let's see if you can find it. 1 Kings chapter 8, look at verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So did you catch the word there? It has three letters, A-R-K. The ark of the covenant is being 
emphasized here. It's why it's repeated so much. You're meant to catch that as you read these verses. That word is supposed to leap off the pages because it is telling you, Christian, something about the God that you love and serve. The author of 1 Kings wants you, and he wants his original audience that he is writing to, who were slaves in exile in Babylon. He wants y'all to know something about your God. He wants to give you hope when you see that word. He wants to give you peace. He wants to give you assurance. He wants to give you the gospel, and it's all found in that one little word, ark. Now, most of you, I assume, are familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, especially if you grew up in the 80s and you saw the movie Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. What a great movie. I could watch that movie on repeat, and I did as a kid. The Ark that Indiana Jones was looking for and the Ark that Solomon moved into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, was simply a little wooden box that was covered over with gold. That's all that it was. But it told worshipers quite a few heart-stabilizing truths about God. And that's why it's mentioned eight times in these nine verses And so the day finally arrives, Solomon's temple is finished. The massive construction project has been seven years in the making, and now the temple is finally complete, and it's fitting now to celebrate this occasion. It's time to party. And notice when this celebration occurs. Verse 2 tells us that all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. This would be our September and October. And it was during the Feast of Tabernacles when the dedication ceremony occurred. The Feast of Tabernacles was an important annual celebration for the nation of Israel. In fact, the Feast of Tabernacles was the biggest celebration of the year for Israel. Every single day, several young bulls and two rams and 14 lambs and one goat were sacrificed. So some 200 animals were sacrificed during the week. And they would sing songs of praise to Yahweh in celebration. They would put their gospel records on, if you will, and they rejoiced. It was a whole week of nothing but 100% pure gospel rehearsal. Seven days of nothing but gospel, 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 gospel. Seven days of just talking about how good Yahweh had been to them in delivering them out of uh, uh, slavery in Egypt. And so during the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, as it is sometimes called, the nation of Israel would make these makeshift tents for an entire week, and they would live in them. It was like camping out. And they would recall their journey in the wilderness when they left Egypt. They would rehearse the gospel and remember how Yahweh had saved them from the clutches of Pharaoh. They would remember and talk about and tell their children about how they were slaves that had been set free and how they roamed the wilderness for 40 years. And they would talk about how Yahweh sustained them through it all. For one week, they lived in tents and rehearsed the gospel. So this was a very significant and special time to dedicate the temple Solomon and company are celebrating that God has finally given them rest 
from their enemies. The Feast of Tabernacle was a gospel celebration where the people of God recalled and remembered God's goodness to them and how they didn't deserve it. And so Solomon brings the Ark of the Covenant to the temple and he places it in the Holy of Holies between the two large cherubim that were there. And I know you may not find yourself immensely excited about this little wooden box. I mean, it's just a little wooden box that was three and a quarters by two and a quarters by two and a quarters feet. And it was made of acacia wood, which was then plated over with gold. It was just a little box. You might stumble upon some little box like this at a thrift store or in an antique store. Minus the gold, of course. But your boredom with these verses might be shaken once you realize that this little box actually represented the very presence of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, among his people. And so these first nine verses about the ark should actually matter to you because these nine verses are a revelation of God Almighty. You might want to highlight the word ark in your Bible because it's a reminder to you that God has revealed himself to and he is willing to be reconciled with sinners. And so what did the ark represent? It represented God's presence among his people. And that little gold-plated wooden box signifies, and and if that little gold-plated box signifies God's presence, well, what sort of God is it implying that is present at the tabernacle and present at the temple? It's a God who says he can't get close enough to his people, that he wants to be with his people. A God who wants to commune with us. What kind of God uses a little gold-plated box to symbolize his presence? Yahweh does. And the first thing the ark tells us about God is that he is sovereign. That he is the king. That he is in control. This little wooden box tells us about providence. What is Providence, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, titled Of Providence, gives the best definition of the sovereignty of God over everything in this world. It says this, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, By his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That's what the ark is telling us. It's telling us that Jesus rules over everything, that he upholds everything, that he governs every little thing in this world down to atoms and molecules. All creatures, all actions, all things are under God's control. Nothing lies outside of his sovereignty. And that might be just enough truth to get you through what you're going through in your life right now. 
So the ark first represents the sovereignty of God over all of his creation. He rules. He sits on his throne and rules. But here's why I say that the ark is telling us about God's sovereign rule over all creation. Because 1 Chronicles 28 verse 2 calls the Ark of the Covenant the footstool of our God. Why did David call the Ark of the Covenant the footstool of Yahweh? Because in the ancient Near East, kings would sit on their thrones and they would use footstools to rest their feet on. And inside these footstools, kings would keep a copy of their laws. Here's a picture of an Egyptian footstool. All the kings in the ancient Near East kept copies of their laws inside these footstools where they rested their feet. In Isaiah 66, 1, the Lord calls the earth his footstool. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool. Specifically, the Ark of the Covenant is his footstool. And what was inside the Ark? The Ten Commandments. Yahweh's laws. Look at verse 9. There was nothing in the Ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. The Ten Commandments were inside the Ark. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant was the footstool for Yahweh. And just like all the kings in the ancient Near East, Yahweh kept a copy of his law at his feet inside the Ark, his footstool. And so the Ark, with that cool lid with the two cherubim on top, the Ark, though a tiny little gold-plated wooden box, it's telling us that God is the sovereign king and that he rules over all. And somebody here today needs to tuck that truth into their heart, that God rules over everything. Somebody needs to tuck the doctrine of God's sovereignty into every nook and cranny of their heart. Somebody here today needs to rub the doctrine of God's sovereignty into their pores. Somebody here came to church And what they need to hear about Jesus is that he is sovereign over everything happening in their life. And though they may not know why what is happening in their life is happening, they can trust God with everything going on in their life. And that person might be you. But the ark also emphasizes not just God's sovereignty, not just his providence. The ark emphasizes Yahweh's revelation of himself, the revelation of his law, what he requires of each and every one of us. As I mentioned, the Ten Commandments were placed inside the ark. In Hebrew, the Ten Commandments are literally the Ten Words. That's how Moses referred to them. The Ten Words. Think about that. Ten words. So already God is dumbing this down for us, if you will. We're so sinful that we can't even master ten words. Think about that. But God speaks to us profoundly through just ten words. He reveals his holy character, his moral law through just ten words. And we can't even master that, can we? 
Why? Why can't we master the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words that were located in the ark? Well, let me ask you. Have you ever worshipped another god? I don't mean bowing down to some sort of idol that you bought and, you know, overseas in West Africa. Have you ever worshipped another god? I mean, like, have you ever worshipped money or power or toys or cars? Fill in the blank. Have you ever worshipped another god? Yeah, I thought so. So strike one. You'd have, you'd have swung and missed, by the way. Strike one. You have worshipped other gods. Have you ever dishonored your mom and dad? Strike two. Y'all aren't doing so well. <laughs> ever murder anyone? Ah, you think you got this one licked, huh? Well, as many of you know, Jesus said that if you hate someone, it's murder. And the same goes for adultery. Lust is adultery. And where is Jesus when he tells us in Matthew 5 through 7 that lust is adultery and hate is murder? He's on a mountain. It's called the Sermon on the what? The Mount. And where was Moses when he gave the law to Israel? A mountain, Mount Sinai. So Jesus is giving the law again to Israel just like Moses did on a mountain. But Jesus says that the heart of the law goes deeper than outward actions. The law cuts to the heart so that hate is really murder. So let's try it again. Ever murder anyone? Strike three. Adultery? Strike four. Steal? Covet? Slander someone? If you think you can master the Bible, God just put ten words in a little gold box for you to obey, and you can't even do that. And he gave you ten fingers to remind you of his ten words. And you still can't do that. Now, think about that. God graciously gave us ten fingers so that we could remember the Ten Commandments. I mean, how kind of him. We can remember who God is, his holy character, as expressed in the Ten Commandments simply by looking at our hands. And so every often, look down at your hands and remember that God has graciously revealed himself to us. But when we look at our fingers and we are reminded of God's law, we will be exposed as sinners. And that's uncomfortable. It's not fun to be told that you are wrong, that you are needy. But if we let God's work God's law do its work and expose us. If we let it expose our hearts, then we'll be crushed by its righteous standard and then we'll run to Jesus. That's why God gave his law, so that we would see our need of Jesus. Understand this, you will always kick and scream when the law exposes you as a sinner because there is a mechanism inside you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. Your inner lawyer, as Paul Tripp calls it, will always rise up to defend you. Why? Because we are on very good terms with ourselves, aren't we? We like us. It's, it's everybody else that we don't like. So we can always put up a good case for ourselves, right? It's why when someone confronts us, we immediately defend ourselves. Because we're right and everybody else is wrong. We're really good at defending ourselves. And we all do it every day. 
we may kick and scream and fight to embrace the truth that we are sinners, but there's a little gold box inside Solomon's temple that says otherwise. There's only one way to know that we are sinners, and it's in that gold box. It's God's law. That's where we discover our sin. Kim Crandall, who spoke at our Women's Ignite event last weekend, says this. She says, It is important that we understand the law in this way because without the law's demands, the gospel loses its luster and simply becomes a nice story. The function of the law is to make us desperate for Jesus. The law cannot save us, nor can it change our hearts. The only work that the law can do is to expose our mess and bring us to our knees begging for grace. I don't know about you, but the fact that God requires perfection frightens the heck out of me. Why? Because I know how very bad I really am and how very short I fall in fulfilling the requirements of God's law. It should scare you too. Our propensity for wrongdoing is the very reason why we need the gospel We need to be rescued from our badness. The law is meant to terrify the conscience so that it looks to Christ. The law is meant to drive us to Jesus. So when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he's not expecting you to think, oh, I can do that. Give me a few years and I can do that. He was expecting you to to be crushed by it, to realize that you can't be perfect and then to run to him. So the law shows us God's character, shows us his holiness, and we discover how we have all fallen short of that. And so the ark speaks of God's sovereignty over all his creation. The ark speaks of God's holiness, but it also speaks of God's willingness to forgive sinners. How about that? The ark tells us that God has provided a means of forgiveness and that we can draw near to him. And so on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of the sin offering on the lid of the ark and in front of the ark. And the reason he did this was because Yahweh wanted to let his people know that they were forgiven. They were forgiven of their many, many, many sins. So the law exposes us But the blood covers us. Mercy triumphs. This is is so cool. Get this. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant, it was called the mercy seat. Think about that. The lid to the Ark of the Covenant, which held the Ten Commandments, which tells us that God is holy. The lid was called the mercy seat. Think about that. It wasn't called the holy lid. It wasn't called the righteous lid. It wasn't called the you don't, you don't belong here lid because you're a sinner. It's called the mercy seat. And it covered the Ten Commandments which were kept inside the ark. The Ten Commandments which tell us that God is holy. The Ten Commandments which reveal His character. The Ten Commandments which expose each and every one of us as sinners. The mercy seat covered the Ten Commandments which were kept inside the ark. And then blood was splattered on the outside of the ark, which means that mercy covers our failure to keep God's holy law. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The ark 
is James chapter 2. Before James chapter 2 is written, mercy triumphs over judgment. Isn't that good news? So yeah, the ark might bore you because the ark is just a little box made of acacia wood which was covered over with gold and it got splattered with blood once a year. But the ark is a reminder that God loves and forgives sinners. So the ark screams out mercy. The ark screams, y'all don't get what you deserve. Y'all don't get what you rightly deserve. Mercy to sinners, mercy to sinners like you and me. So the ark is a gentle reminder from God that he loves even you, if you can believe that. The ark is a reminder that Jesus can't remember your sins. You might want to underline the word ark in your Bible because every time you read the word ark in your Bible, you are being reminded that the sin that you cannot seem to forget, Jesus cannot remember. You are being reminded that God loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. The ark was a reminder that we are not saved by what we do. We're not saved by keeping the rules because we can't keep the rules perfectly. We are saved because Jesus kept the rules for us. And so what do we do in response? Nothing. We just rest in that truth. We just believe it. The ark is trying to tell you, rehearse the gospel over and over and over again until every nook and cranny of your heart believes it. Just keep rehearsing it until your heart says, yes, I believe. And then freedom comes. When you blow it, rehearse the gospel, whatever it means for you to blow it. Parents, when you blow it as parents and you go to bed weighed down with shame and guilt because you haven't been a good parent, rehearse the gospel. Kids, when you blow it and disobey your parents, rehearse the gospel. When you're in a roundabout and you say something you shouldn't say, rehearse the gospel. When you sin, rehearse the gospel like a broken record. Let the gospel skip on the turntable of your heart until your heart believes it. Believe that the gospel is true. It's true. And trust that faith in Christ alone saves you. And believe that you are accepted by God because of Jesus. Richard Lovelace said, Few Few people, few know how to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Martin Luther's platform. You are accepted. Looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only grounds for acceptance. The only ground of our acceptance with God. We cannot look internal for that. If we look internal, we'll despair because of our sin and guilt, or we'll look in and think, I'm not that bad, I'm pretty good. The only way to have acceptance with God is to look out to Christ, not in. You can't look in. You have to look out to Christ and by faith say, I believe it. 
No amount of repentance will cleanse you from your sins. The intensity of your repentance does not cleanse you of your sins. The time spent repenting does not wash you of your sins. The blood of Jesus washes you of your sins. And if you say, I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me, I believe you're forgiven. It's not the intensity of our repentance. God, please forgive me. It's just saying, I'm sorry. I believe Jesus paid it all. Trust that faith in Christ alone saves you. Believe that you're accepted by God because of Jesus and not you. And then stand on that truth and rest in it and breathe in deep and relax because it is finished and Jesus paid it all. And Jesus wants you to just give up. After being exposed by God's law, he wants you to just give up and then to just collapse on him. That's the point of the law. That's the point of the Ten Commandments. That's where all the festivals and sacrifices that Solomon and company are doing here, are, we're anticipating, is that a Savior would come and he would do everything for us. And so every time we pick up the Bible, We should be looking for that Savior who came to do everything for us. We should be looking for Jesus because the Bible is about Jesus. Sally Lloyd-Jones said this about writing the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I recommend you to get. I don't care if you don't have kids or grandkids. Get it. She says, that's why I wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible. So children, and I would say and parents, and grandparents, and me. I think she wrote it for me, honestly. So children could know what I didn't. That the Bible isn't mainly about me and what I should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. That the Bible is largely, though not only, a great story. The greatest story of all. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. That, in spite of everything, no matter what, whatever it cost him, God won't ever stop loving his children with a wonderful, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's the Bible. That the Bible, in short, has a marvelous, coherent storyline. It's not just a collection of rules and that there is only one hero in the story. I wrote so children could meet the hero in its pages and become part of his magnificent story because rules don't change you. But a story, God's story, by the power of his spirit can. A story can change you. The gospel story can change you and that's why we need to hear it every day. But could anything be more impractical than the attempt to uh, influence conduct by rehearsing events concerning the death of a religious leader? Really? I mean, is that it? Rehearse the events of the death of Jesus? Is it that simple? Just trust him? Just believe simply that somebody else, through his life, death, and resurrection, has made it all right? Yep. It's that simple. That's the gospel. That's the story. That's the story that saves and changes sinners. And so your homework this week, Grace, is to rehearse the gospel over and over and over again until every single nook and cranny of your heart believes it. No exceptions on nooks and crannies in your heart. Every nook and cranny in your heart believes it. Like a broken record that skips and keeps playing that part of the song, 
You just put your gospel records on and let it skip and say it over and over. And when you blow it, repeat the story. Christ died for sinners of whom I am the worst. When you sin, repeat the story. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you're weighed down with shame and guilt, repeat the story. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Repeat the story. Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Repeat the story. I will remember their sins no more. The Bible isn't mainly about us and what we should be doing. It's about God and what he has already done for us. The Bible is the greatest story of all. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. The Bible is the story of how God won't ever stop loving his children with a wonderful, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. The Bible is not just a collection of rules because we all know this. Rules don't change you. Rules won't save you. But a story, God's story, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can. And that's what we're doing here today with communion. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're just rehearsing the story again. We come to the table to rehearse the gospel again and again, over and over, because this story, this story is enough for us. It's enough for us. This is enough. Alec Motier said, but there is a tonic. Look back and see what God did in earlier days. Reckon that he is still the same. Pray for repeat action. In the Old Testament, they look back to Exodus days. We too can look back, yes, to the Exodus, but even more to the gospel, the mighty works of grace which marked Jesus' earthly life, his majestic death and great salvation, the power of his resurrection. If they had a tonic, For a bad day, we have even more. And so Solomon and company looked back to the exodus from slavery in Egypt. And we look back too to the cross. Let's do that as we pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that Jesus did everything. Thank you that on the cross, Lord, he bore the penalty for our sin We deserve eternal damnation and Jesus took it upon himself on the cross. And as we come to the table today, Lord, we know no amount of our repentance cleanses us from sin. Only the blood of your son, Jesus. No time spent repenting, hours upon hours, cleanses us. Only the blood of your son. We do repent. We admit that we're sinners and we have broken your law this week. And we just simply say, forgive us. Forgive us for all the ways that we have lived for our kingdom and not yours. And wash us now and cleanse us and help us to celebrate. Help us to party because you're so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen.